The body doesn't have a voice. It gives us symptoms to let us know whether it's happy or not with our choices. And it's up to us to decipher those. And I think initially the body will whisper its symptoms. And if we don't pay attention, eventually it will roar at us. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rate Active Podcast. We're bringing you insightful conversations to help you live an active and inspired life. So make sure you hit subscribe so that you get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. I'm your host, Rachel J, and I'm so excited to welcome my guest to the show today. She's a nutritional biochemist. She's also a women's health expert, a 13 times best-selling author, and the founder of BioBlends, which is a plant-based supplement company. Company. Welcome to the show, Dr. Libby Weaver. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here with you, Rach. I'm so excited to have you on the show. And you know what? I think a long time ago, I used to run a site called Eat Beautiful, probably 10 years ago. And I think we did a little something together for that. So it was, it's been a long time. And I know you've been in this space for a really long time. So I'm so excited to reconnect with you again. Oh, that's so lovely. Yes. Thank you so much. And now I'm, one of the things that I've found with speaking to a lot of people who work in the health and wellness space is that Sometimes there's a personal journey that has led them to this kind of work and or some sort of something that's piqued their interest to to lead them to this space. And, you know, nutritional biochemistry is a pretty specific field. So I'm interested to know, can you share a little bit about what led you to explore this particular kind of work? Was there something that you experienced personally that you really took to? that led you to this this arena? Yeah, it's quite a surprising story and it's not really a direct one. But uh, so I did, I went to university for 14 years, which I know makes me sound really thick and like I failed everything, but I very much love learning and I still do. So I originally studied nutrition and dietetics and then went on and did a PhD in biochemistry. So the, the road that led me there was I realised that I the only thing I kind of read about for pleasure was nutrition and health and human behaviour. So that was just sort of, that was just my natural interest that led me to do nutrition and dietetics. But I was really surprised that I went on and did a PhD in biochemistry and that's where the story is. So in my third year of nutrition and dietetics, we, have to, we do immunology as one of our subjects and we had a guest lecturer who was a doctor in his 70s and he was an allergist. And he, he spoke for about three hours about allergy. And at the end of it, I just felt like I wanted to prove his brain. And it was an unusual response because I didn't have any allergies myself. They weren't in my family. And I think often to kind of care about things, we've got to have a personal experience. Uh, we, it, or it helps sometimes to have a personal experience with it. But anyway, I spoke to him afterwards. And anyway, then you just get busy with uni and finishing everything up. And in my final um, practical placement working, I didn't ever call myself a dietitian, but that's what I was. Uh, and my final placement was uh, in a country hospital. And my boss let me run the outpatient clinic for the last three weeks. So obviously she was there if, uh, if there were questions that I needed help with. But in those three weeks, I saw three children of very different ages with very different symptoms. And I wasn't really, what I was remembering was what this allergist had taught us in this immunology lecture. And I was acting on what he'd taught me. And all three children got well. And a lot of them had had a huge amount of medical attention. And here's me sitting there thinking, I'm a student dietitian and I'm the one getting to the heart of what's going on for these kids. This makes absolutely no sense. How come people aren't looking more at dietary change to make a difference in people's lives? So I phoned my immunology lecturer who wouldn't have remembered me from a bar of soap because I was one of the <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of people sitting in his lecture theatre and I told him what I'd noticed and he said, you need to do a PhD. And I said, oh, no, I'm terrible at science. I'm a real people person. I'd be terrible in a lab. And he said, no, you've got curiosity. That's all you need. Mm. And so I ended up enrolling in a PhD and so I've combined my nutrition degree uh, with that PhD in biochemistry and it it profoundly changed my life and since then I've worked with people one-on-one -on -one for over 20 years and I combine my uni work with obviously with um, my 20 years of clinical practice to create my three-pillar approach, the biochemical, nutritional and emotional. Yes, and I love that so much because 
I mean, well, that's fascinating firstly that that you had a, I mean, I, I tend, even if it's not you directly, you, there's something that usually happens, you you witness something where it really impacts you and and mm. I, and it's so amazing to see that you've taken that and it's led you down this completely, I mean, different path than perhaps you were thinking at the time. Um, but this, you were talking there just about, you just touched on there, this really distinct approach that you have with combining nutrition emotions and biochemistry. And I really love that this is almost like a more holistic approach to health in general. And I'm interested to hear you speak more about your approach and how you've sort of pulled this together because, you know, everybody sort of has a different approach to nutrition, but to combine all of these aspects, what is it that's unique about the way that you approach it and and kind of explain and unpack that for us? Yeah, I'd love to. So obviously with my first degree, I learnt very distinctly uh, the power of nutrition and uh, what happens when we are really well nourished and getting all of our macronutrients as well as our micronutrients. And then of course, what goes on when we don't get enough of those um, particularly micronutrients going in. So and then once I started to see the power of those nutrients a huge part of that is because not only do they give our cells what they require, but those nutrients feed every single biochemical pathway inside of us. So for, for listeners who feel that that's a bit confusing, let me break it down further. So a biochemical reaction, and there are billions of them going off inside of us every single second, billions, think about that, every single second, <laughs> and we don't have to instruct them. But one reaction is where, say, substance A gets converted into substance B, that's one reaction, and then substance B will get converted into substance C, and then C becomes D, D becomes E, and on and on that cascade of change continues to go, To, to uh, that continues. And so let's go back to the first one, substance A being converted into substance B. Let's say for that reaction to occur, we need magnesium, zinc, and vitamin C. If we are deficient in any or all of those nutrients, then that reaction won't occur efficiently. And then that means that substance A will start to accumulate and then we won't have enough substance B. And maybe when we have the right amount of substance A in our blood, there's no problem. But if it starts to accumulate, maybe it behaves more like a poison to us and then it's a problem. Mm. And then also now we don't have enough substance B and maybe we need substance B for great energy or to be able to use body fat efficiently as a fuel or for restorative sleep or for a calm response, a calm even kind of headspace. So in other words, when we become nutritionally deficient, there are consequences to that, but we're not really taught to look at our health in that way. And people blame so much about what they experience across their life on I'm getting old. I've had 25-year-olds sit in my office and say, I'm so tired, mm. but, you know, like I'm 25. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, if you're tired at 25, there's a huge amount of feedback in there about <laughs> something that's, that's not kind of working for you. Yeah. Um, so we blame it on age. We, can bl- we sometimes blame it on stress. And sometimes, yes, those things can play a role, but we're not taught to consider our nutritional status. So that was sort of the beginning of my work with those two pillars and addressing those. But then when you actually work with people one-on-one, you start to see that a lot of people have terrific knowledge, but they don't necessarily act on it consistently. So they might do something you suggest for three days or three weeks or three months, but unless deeper work is done, they will usually revert back to what they were doing and then beat themselves up terribly about that. So very early on in my work, I set about trying to answer the question, why do people do what they do even though they know what they know? And that forms the emotional component of my work. So it's actually our beliefs and our values that drive our behaviour. And until we dig in and find the beliefs that people have about themselves, it can be really tricky to for them to change behaviour. So we, we're usually really good at knowing what we believe about things outside of us. So we know what we think about that political party or that environmental policy or the family that lives in that house down the road. So we're good at knowing those beliefs. But when I say to someone, who, do you, who did you have to be for one of your parents to really love you? it takes us a lot longer to answer those questions because our beliefs about ourselves are all tied up in that and they are huge drivers of our behaviour and our choices. Mm, yeah, so we're talking about here unconscious beliefs, so beliefs that may, we may have picked up during childhood or things that we may have heard 
that inform the way that we act and behave and make choices, right? Um, I'm curious to know with that with with that being the basis of some of your work there, especially with, I think, dealing with so many different people over the span over years that you've been in this field, what are the most common beliefs that you find that impact people's choices around their food and body and understanding how to actually implement, like you said, taking those actions? What are the most common beliefs that seem to come up? I'm not worth taking care of Mm. and that's common and the perceived lack of love and or approval from significant figures in their life. So it's just that we can't usually, it's hard to see them. Our beliefs are all tied up in our language patterns. So someone like me is trained to listen for them. But when you say something you don't hear it as a belief. You think it's real. Mm. So that's why it's tricky for us to find them ourselves. And so it can be helpful to begin to find your own in the areas where you perceive you're not good enough. So list, try to catch yourself in the act of saying things like, I, I, I'm not good enough, I'm not enough, I'm not a good enough daughter, I'm not a good enough sister, I'm not a good enough mother, or it might be I'm not smart enough, I'm not tall enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not loud enough, I'm not quiet enough. It's all so much of it is tied up in our beliefs around our not enoughness. A little quick example I can give you is uh, to, to, to sort of show you how to, to, to bring to life just how slippery some of these beliefs can be. I will never forget a lady I worked with. She was 60 years old when she came to see me and She's, and I always say, how can I help? What would you like to get out of this session? And she said, well, I want to lose weight, Libby, but I eat a lot of cake after dinner. So if your only solution is to tell me to stop eating the cake, I may as well leave now because I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I can't stop. Anyway, in she came and I asked her my gazillions of questions, which begin initially in exploring what's going on in the physical body. So do you get headaches? Tell me about your sinus pressure. Do you use your bowels every day? Or literally go through every body system. And then because up until that point, I've only asked about their physical health, I usually then will say, uh, are your parents still alive? And because I'm giving you all my secrets now. <laughs> and because, uh, because at that po- up until that point, I've only spoken about physical health, people think, oh, she's asking me about my family's medical history. Mm. And I kind of am. Mm. So, you know, is there heart disease, cancer, et cetera? But what I'm really looking for is their response to me bringing up their parents because you can see if there's a world of chaos or calm back there. And it was very obvious that for this 60-year-old lady in front of me, there were some challenges there. And I asked her if she'd mind sharing. And she said, well, my mother died giving birth to me and my father hasn't spoken to me since I was 14. And when she expanded on that, she was born in Ireland. And she said, I literally grew up in the middle of nowhere on our family's great big farm. I had older brothers. The nearest one to me in age was 13, so there was a big gap. And I lived there with my dad and my brothers. I was the only girl, obviously, but I was good at school and I helped with the house. But then when I was 14, my father wrote a letter and he put me on a boat and he sent me to live in New Zealand with a distant aunt and I never heard from him again. Now... I'm the 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 behavior is tied up in the belief. Mm. And so I'm waiting to I'm waiting for her to say that. And she gave it to me. She said, he loved my brothers enough to keep them. He didn't love me enough to keep me. Mm. Now you can understand why she would say that based on what had gone on, but you can also see how she can't see that that's not the truth. Mm. For her, that's real and that's reality. And I said to her, what if the opposite's true? And what if he sent you away because he loved you so much? I said, you think about it from his perspective. He was, you know, an already ageing Irishman with a house full of boys and a farm to run and you were the only girl and you said you were good at school. He'll have wanted you to get a way better education than you were ever going to get living um, so remotely in the middle of nowhere Mm. in Ireland. And you were a female and he'll have, someone had probably told him that girls get periods and he probably was concerned that you needed support for that. So he'll have sent you to live with an aunt so that you could be helped. So he sent you away because he loved you so much and he probably broke his own heart in the process. And she said, I've never thought about it like that. And it's not like she laid around at night going, dad doesn't love me. I better eat cake to numb the pain. She she just believed that he sent her away because he loved her brothers more and didn't love her enough. 
And so I said to her, well, you've said to me, she'd said to me earlier that he was still alive. And so I was a bit bolshy and said, well, is there any way you could contact him? And she said, I could probably get a phone number. And I said, why don't you phone him and ask him why he sent you away? And still to this day, it, I, I get goosebumps all up the back of my neck talking about it. She found the courage inside herself to ring him up and ask him uh, why he sent her away. And he gave her a version of what I just said to you. Wow. So she lived, she lived her whole life. She lived from the age of 14 to the age of 60 in the cloud of false belief that her father didn't love her when the exact opposite was true. So I didn't sit there and talk to her about cake. That was the work we did. Mm. And she stopped eating it. She probably still ate it when she went out for a cup of tea with her friends, which is fine. It was that every night mm. eating way too much cake every night after dinner was what was hurting her health. And so it's it's um, humbling and it's really breathtaking when you watch that in action because the change, and I don't say this lightly, the change is effortless once you get to the heart of the beliefs that are driving the behaviour that's leading you to not take care of yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's such an incredible story. And I love hearing stories like that where people can make such impactful shifts literally just by shifting a perception of something that they've had in their mind, which like you said before, I mean, our version of reality, our experience of the world is through the lens that we see the world. And so we literally can just shift that perspective and in an instant change the way that we apply ourselves and take actions and like you said, make decisions. And it can literally be done in a second. I love that so much. That's such a great, thank you for sharing that story. That's such an amazing example of of how we can really change our lives really so quickly. And obviously, you know, you, you work with women a lot and specifically with food and you know, I think one of the, the the biggest areas that we, I guess, talk about in this space is is weight loss. Um, so I'm curious to know, I guess, what the biggest problems people come to you with in terms of weight loss. What is the most common thing that people are saying or problems that they face around this area? They feel like they make effort and are not rewarded for it mm. because so many people still live with the belief that the calorie equation is the only thing that drives our body shape and size. So, and it's certainly how I was originally educated. So when you're taught that your body shape and size is the result of how much you eat versus how much you burn off. And when that's your focus and you don't get the outcomes that you think are warranted for your efforts and your choices, it's incredibly disheartening and it's incredibly becomes really devastating for a lot of women. Mm. And I certainly noticed this very early on in my working life that there were some people, because that was my training. So originally that's what I would do with people. And I learned very quickly that there was so much more to it. And I actually uh, was witnessing a lot of uh, an inability to use body fat effectively as, as a fuel in my clients. I had my own experience with this. When I was at uni, I was a mad keen runner. I would run at least an hour a day, usually more. I was slim, happy and healthy. And I would have sworn to you at the time that there was no way I was running uh, for weight management or weight loss. But I can see in hindsight, I was definitely running for weight management because it was so drilled into me in my education that you basically had to burn off whatever you ate if you wanted to stay the same size. Mm. But then I, got a, then I got a job working in a health retreat and I had to get up in the dark uh, to drive to work because it was in the, out in the middle of nowhere in a beautiful place. And my first job for the day was to wake the guests up and then I was to teach them Qigong or Tai Chi for half an hour, which is like a moving meditation so you don't burn very many calories. <laughs> and then my, next, then my next job for the day was to take the guests who hadn't exercised in a long time. I took them on what was called the easy walk. So it was 20 minutes over flat ground so I, I didn't break a sweat. And I wasn't able to keep running because I was going to work in the dark and getting home in the dark. So uh, I went from, and my eating stayed the same across this period, and I went from being Little Miss Runner burning bucket loads of calories to Little Miss Tai Chi hardly burning any, and my clothes got looser. And it fried my brain because based on how I was educated, the opposite was supposed to happen. Mm. So it was that experience coupled with what I was noticing in more and more of my particularly female clients that led me back to my geeky biochemistry textbooks with the question in my mind, 
what leaves the human body to get the message that it needs to burn fat and what leaves the body to get the message that it needs to store fat. And I put those answers into the very first book I wrote, which is called Accidentally Overweight. And it's really been the basis of, it's the basis of a nine week online course I do for women and a weight loss workshop series I have coming up. So it really has formed the basis of a lot of a lot of what I do, that what I learned through that. So there are actually nine factors that will influence whether we get the message to burn fat or store it. And so for women who are really frustrated that they're making all this effort with food and movement or they feel like they've got to eat like, like a little bird and exercise like a maniac to get anywhere, that's not healthy mm. because when you eat like a bird, you usually miss out on a heap of micronutrients that you need. And when we exercise like maniacs, it can lead to all sorts of consequences for our adrenal glands, for example, for our sex hormone balance. A lot, a lot can go out of whack when we overexercise. So, yeah, it's it was um, it was that kind of changed, I guess, the direction of my work. Mm, that's incredible, I, and I think just understanding that it isn't just a simple. I mean, the body sometimes we treat it like a machine that it's just if you input this and output that, then it's going to produce this result. But there are so many, like you said, different factors that that play into the system and it working optimally at that level. So you touched on their adrenal glands and obviously with that will come elevated cortisol levels, et cetera. For people listening who don't really know what that means and how that can affect their body, can you sort of speak to that? And because cortisol is is the stress hormone and people often say stress this you know affects me but can you kind of explain how that might impact someone in terms of their weight and how that might might uh, look like for them yeah of course so the, the simplest way I can explain stress biochemically at the moment is I break it up into three stages so stage one stress is where adrenaline initially elevates adrenaline is our fight or flight hormone uh, for the entirety of human history it's communicated to our body that our life is literally in danger but for the very very recent past which is a tiny amount of time in the huge amount of time we've been here as a human species we now make adrenaline sometimes in response to things that aren't life-threatening so caffeine leads the human body to make adrenaline our perceptions of pressure and urgency consciously or unconsciously worrying about what other people think of us can lead us to make adrenaline. So there's lots, a lot of it is psychological now rather than Mm. uh, a genuine threat to our life. But we haven't lived, our species hasn't evolved uh, long enough for for our body to have worked out that adrenaline can mean other things. So when we make adrenaline because we've had a couple of coffees and we're stressing out about 600 unopened emails and we're worrying (laughs) about the conversation we had three weeks ago, the body still thinks it, it can't discern between the adrenaline we make when a car drives out in front of us and the adrenaline we make for more modern rate for, for coffees and emails and things. Mm. So because it thinks our life's in danger, there's a lot of biochemical changes that go on. So blood pressure elevates and one in three adults in Australia has high blood pressure. There's many mechanisms involved in that, but this is one of them. The second big thing that happens is our digestion is compromised because Adrenaline, uh, because adrenaline says our life's in danger, it diverts blood away from digestion to the periphery to our arms and legs because that'll power us to get out of danger. So digestion, yeah, is compromised when we're living on our stress hormones. And one in five women in Australia have irritable bowel syndrome and food plays a role in that, but so does this stress response. And I don't think it's talked about enough or acknowledged enough. So in the, at this point, body fat, isn't usually being affected, but you'll notice that your digestion isn't what it once was. But then the third, when this keeps going, adrenaline, because adrenaline says our life's in danger, we need a fast burning fuel to help get us out of danger. And in any given moment, the body's always using a combination of fat and glucose, but it's what percentage. So right now, as we're sitting here chatting, is it 50, am I burning 50% glucose, 50% fat, or is it 80% fat, 20% glucose, or the reverse of that? And when we've got high circulating levels of adrenaline, because the body thinks our life's in danger, it needs a fast burning fuel to help power us to get out of danger. Mm. And that fast burning fuel is glucose, not fat. So we will upregulate our utilisation of glucose over body fat when there's high circulating levels of adrenaline. And 
that is the beginning for a lot of people of a disruption to their ability to use fat efficiently as a fuel if it keeps going, which stress does for a lot of people, for most people these days. And then the next thing that happens with that adrenaline is we start making compounds that promote inflammation inside of us. And the body knows inflammation is degenerative. Uh, it, it ages us basically from the inside out. And to, in, to compensate for that, to try to protect us from the damage that that's causing, we then move into the second stage of the stress response, which is when cortisol elevates. And the reason the cortisol elevates at this point is because it's a powerful anti-inflammatory. That's one of the mm. good pieces of work cortisol does. So it's trying to dampen down this inflammatory response that adrenaline's creating. So we haven't dealt with why we're making all that adrenaline. That's still happening. So we've got elevated adrenaline, but now we've also got elevated cortisol. And historically, the only long-term stress humans had was around food shortage, floods, famines, wars. And so, again, in modern times, the body hasn't yet learnt how to discern between what we worry about in modern times, like relationships or our bank balance or our health or we might have health concerns for a loved one it's all the same to the body mm. and it says what is all saying there's no food left in the world so the body thinks it's doing you a big favor by slowing your metabolism down when you have elevated cortisol because it thinks that there's no food left in the world and if it can put some more body fat on you you're a lot more likely to still be here once the food supply gets reinstated mm. so the way cortisol operates though the way it does slow metabolism it's a catabolic hormone so it breaks our muscles down that slows metabolism we start to increase body fat even though we're eating the same and moving the same it has a really distinct fat deposition pattern you get fat around the middle uh, and you grow a back veranda. It's often how I explain it. So we kind of thicken up on our torso. And again, it makes sense from a survival perspective because if there's no food in the world, all the organs that keep us alive are all, except for our brain, they're all housed in our torso. So they're going to need protection and warmth and nourishment to get us through these lean times. So our body has our absolute best interests at heart. Mm. It's just that we don't often like the way it's responding. So a big part of my work at the moment is to help people to communicate the truth to their body, which is that we are relatively, thankfully, very safe. Because a big part of why we'll continue to make these stress hormones is when the hypothalamus in our brain is asking the question, am I safe? Mm. The answer for most people all day, every day is no. Mm. And all the, all the glands in the endocrine system that make our hormones like our thyroid and our adrenals and our ovaries, uh, they're getting the message that we're not safe and they then respond accordingly to that and it's not true. So we've got to work out how to communicate the truth to our body. Mm, this is so fascinating because I think, I mean, even just touching on one, because that's just one factor. Obviously, there's, uh, there's other factors as well that, that play into uh, how our body operates, but we're just talking about particularly the adrenal glands and stress hormones. So if we kind of continue down this trail since we've kind of gone down it already, how do we communicate to our bodies that we are safe? I think it's so fascinating that our bodies haven't evolved enough to pick up on the fact that they can't discern the difference between, again, like we were talking about before, the perception of what we perceive to be danger or to place us in an in a unsafe position when in reality it's not like we're going to, you know, sort of die from drinking too much coffee. It's just our body is responding in that way. So how yeah. is it that we we can actually communicate to our bodies that we, we are actually safe so that it can normalise those levels? So for, so firstly, the most powerful thing we can do or the, to act, so when we're in the fight or flight response, we activate a part of our nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system. And the opposite arm of that, which is the calm arm of the nervous system, is the parasympathetic nervous system. But the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system are part of a bigger piece of the nervous system that's called the autonomic nervous system. And we all don't worry, listeners don't need to worry about all the stupid big long words. The concept that's important to grasp is that we can't instruct, we can't boss around our autonomic nervous system. So when you've activated the fight or flight response you and your heart's racing and blood's diverted to the periphery so your digestion's compromised, you're mostly using glucose, not your body fat, 
and even just to take that a bit further, when you mostly use glucose, of course, you're going to crave sugar to try to mm. top up uh, that, that fuel tank. So when you're in that place, because this is part of your autonomic nervous system, you can't override it with your thinking. You can't just dip into that part of your nervous system and go, it's okay, we're, we're cool, just chill out, you know, mm-hmm. we're just all amped up because we've had three coffees and we're stressed about our emails and our next-door neighbour's not talking to us or whatever. <laughs> yes. you, can't, you can't override it with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that science currently knows that will allow us to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, the calm arm, which I call the green zone, the only thing we know that will do that is when we extend the length of our exhalation. <laughs> yes. So... You can teach yourself. It was how we, we, we breathe like it when we're babies. If you look at a little baby when they breathe, they breathe in and out through their nostrils and their little belly goes up and down when they breathe. If you walk into a room of adults, a lot of them are mouth breathing and the only part of them that moves is this upper part of their chest, so short, sharp, shallow breaths, and that's adrenaline driving that. So when someone's in that place, their body's getting the message that they're not safe. But when we drop down into diaphragmatic breathing, which is obviously that was a huge thing that I, I had to go and learn with a Tai Chi master um, when I first got my job in a health retreat and he taught me to breathe and to slow it down, to slow it right down. So you want to slow it down ideally instead of being 14 to 20 breaths per minute, which is what most adults run at, you want to drop it down to five or six breaths per minute and you can do that. Counting initially can help you to do that. So I get people to place one hand on top of the other just beneath their belly button, just beneath their navel. And as you inhale, you can count very slowly to four. And then there's a gentle pause at the top of the breath, at the top of the inhale. Don't hold your breath, just a little gentle pause. And then you slowly exhale for, say, six counts. Mm. And you can, and then just do that on repeat and you'll get it down to five or six breaths per minute when you do that. And if you just do that, I encourage people to get rituals across their day that help them to become breath aware because a lot of people will say to me, oh, well, I do yoga twice a week and I'm really breath focused then. And that's fantastic. Please keep doing that. But that's two hours out of your whole week. What are you, how are you living for the rest of that time? Mm. So if we can, if we just need rituals in our day. So it might be every time you stopped at red traffic lights, don't check your phone, do long, slow breaths for as long as the traffic lights are red. Or if you have a desk job and you can see the time on your computer, every hour on the hour, do 20 long, slow breaths. Just get little rituals that fit into your day that help you to become breath aware because then you'll start to notice that you're breathing diaphragmatically, you're breathing slowly, mostly, and then you'll notice when you come out of it. And there's no problem to come out of it. We don't need to always live in that green zone. A healthy person swings really easily between parasympathetic and sympathetic. It's just our health becomes a real challenge for us when we get stuck in the sympathetic activation. So extending the length of the exhalation is um, one of the best ways. There are other ways. There are some really lovely medicinal herbs that can be really helpful uh, that support the nervous system, that support the adrenals. Medicinal herbs really need to be tailored to an individual though, but there are plenty of those. And then like with every part of my work, I like to take it further though. And I, instead of us, we need the tools I've just talked about because of the way the world is right now and the way we are in it. But I try to take it further and get people to examine what leads them as an individual to produce stress hormones in the first place with the goal of them producing fewer. So, and we've touched on some of them already. So, for example, what leads what leads a human to produce adrenaline? It's caffeine. It's our perceptions of pressure and urgency. What a lot of us have done is we've made what we get to do each day full of stress and pressure and urgency. And there are some things that are urgent. If you get a phone call from school that your child's been injured, that's urgent. You want to get there as quickly as you can. But we kind of pile everything up and our day, we might jam pack our days. And so we create a perception that all of that is full of pressure and urgency when actually it's not. We're just choosing to see it that way. And then the other big thing, which I think is a really big deal these days is and I touched on it before, it's consciously or unconsciously worrying what others think of us. Mm. So when we perceive, the best way I can describe it at the moment is we all have, uh, so if we want to lower our stress hormones 
and live with fewer stress hormones each day. I think this is one of the best things we can do. We all have traits, T-R-A-I-T-S. We all have traits that we need other people to see in us. So a great exercise to do is to ask yourself, how do I need others to see me? And sometimes you can do it in a, bl- in a blanket sense, just how do I need others to see me? I've found that other people get more benefit from this exercise if they focus on particular people. So how do I need my mother to see me? How do I need my boss to see me? my sister, whoever, Mm. and you name the traits. And so those traits might be, you might write down, I need other people to see me as kind, thoughtful, selfless, or it might be more along the lines of intelligent, efficient, hardworking, competent, whatever it is. There's no right or wrong. You just want to know the traits that you need others to see in you. And then the next time you're stressed, whether you show others that or not, because a lot of us keep it wrapped up on the inside, But the next time you're stressed, pause and consider, am I perceiving someone is seeing me in the opposite way to the way I've identified I need to be seen? And most of the time the answer will be yes. And the reason that that insight makes a difference is because you can either just laugh at yourself and see what you're doing to yourself with your thoughts or it might mean you have a conversation with that person. It might be your boss. You might have run late for a meeting. And the reason running late stressed you out is because you were worried that your boss would think you were inefficient or you didn't value your job or you weren't a hard worker. And so at the end of the meeting, you say, to, you, you have a chat to your boss, like, it's, I'm sorry I was late. Things got out of hand this morning. I, it's really important to me that you know that I value my job. I work as hard as I can. No boss is going to stand there and rap you over the knuckles when you're pouring your heart out about how much you care about your job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it clears the air. Uh, you get the connection you're seeking. It, it kind of gets to the heart of what's really behind it rather than us just sitting there in a very futile state reciting, I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so much of what you said there, and there, there was a lot that you said there that is so powerful if we can really implement in our lives. Firstly, the breath work I think is huge. I mean, I feel like breath work is is becoming hugely mainstream because people are becoming aware of how powerful the breath is. And in this instance, we're talking about it in the context of uh, lowering those stress hormones or lowering that fight or flight response in the body is to focus on that elongating the exhalation and I really like what you said there about infusing your day with just little rituals. So just to reiterate, stopping at a, a red stop sign and taking some long breaths instead of looking at your phone, because I know even though we're not meant to, we probably all do check social media or something like that. But just having those little things that we do throughout the day, like like what you said, rather than just if we do yoga or something like that. It's something that we do every day. But I think it's really interesting here because, again, it comes back to looking at beliefs and that that deeper work really because when I think when you even look at the conversation it starts off being about uh, weight loss or how stressed we are but when you really dig a bit deeper they really are symptoms of what's going on underneath and and I really like that as well that you said if we can identify the triggers of what is actually causing the stress in the first place and just to break it down again, you've got obviously the things that you ingest like caffeine and things like that, that may elevate your heart rate or increase those levels, but perceptions of ourselves and our perception of how other people perceive us mm-hmm. and really breaking that down. I love that so much. So I think, I mean, coming back to weight and I know that this is, the thing is now that we've unpacked this, I mean, we know that everything is going to come back to a perception or a belief or something that is deep within us. So all of these external things that we may hear, for example, a common complaint people have is that people carry body fat in their midsection. But then also if we look to, I suppose, cravings or any one of those symptoms, is your process really just to come back to what is actually going on for you aside from these physical symptoms? Is that sort of how you would suggest people look at these things? Because someone might come to you and say, well, I'm having sugar cravings at, you know, sort of 3 p.m. And that's pretty standard. And I think a lot of people experience that. So we can go to the physical part of it, like you just explained there, 
what would be the suggestion for digging a little bit deeper? Because there's obviously the different aspects we need to look at. So what would, so for example, let's take the the sugar cravings. How would we address that on a physical level? And then how would we address that on an emotional level? Hmm. Great question. So I love to see things as having layers. So because this is just my belief, but I kind of see that our, I call the body an earth suit and our earth suit's the only way our soul gets to be here and have this experience. And I think I feel like we're at earth school. So uh, we have to address our earth suit and what it's talking, what it's giving to us. The body doesn't have a voice. It gives us symptoms to let us know whether it's happy or not with our choices. And it's up to us to decipher those. And I think initially the body will whisper its symptoms And if we don't pay attention, eventually it will roar at us. And so when you're getting, I don't mean a sugar craving just randomly, but when they're consistent, it's kind of what you're saying every afternoon at three o'clock. I always start with the physical. I always start with the body. So is it an actual need of the body? So the first thing I would look at is what, if it's at three o'clock in the afternoon, what did you have for lunch? Because a lot of people, women especially, have really inadequate lunches. They'll, they might be, fo- if they're focused on weight loss, they'll try to have a salad. I don't know very many people who are satisfied with salads. I don't, there's no way on the planet I would ever eat a salad for lunch because I'd be hungry in about five minutes. Mm. So unless it's got some decent things in it. So if it's got some sweet potato in it and it's got some protein in it, but I think a lot of women don't eat carbs at lunch thinking uh, that that's going to be a good thing to help them lose weight which may or may not be the case. We're all different like that. But so is the sugar craving coming because you did you had an inadequate lunch, there wasn't enough fat? Well, it was one of the macros missing, fat, protein or carbohydrate. So if that's the case, you could change your lunch and see if that changes your sugar cravings in the middle of the afternoon. Or maybe you're actually someone who does better with five small meals a day because I think some people do well with two or three really robust meals a day. Other people do better with five or six small meals a day. There's no right or wrong. Do whatever works for you. So if you know that you're someone who does better with something at three o'clock, you need to prepare it. So on a Sunday, take some time, make some bliss balls that have got lots of seeds and nuts and things in them. There might be dates in there as the sweetener, but there's probably six dates across 30 balls. So you'll get the hit of sweetness on your tongue that you're craving, but there'll be plenty of fat from the seeds and nuts. And so that makes them really satiating. So just one or two of those would probably do a better job than going to the service station and buying poor quality chocolate bars, for example. So at least you have something nutritious. So that's kind of how I'd package the physical exploration of that. Mm. And then if it's none of that, then you dig deeper. So then I would go to what's going on biochemically. Okay, well, I lived on, you know, I've had four coffees across the day which sets us up on a, that can mess our blood sugar up. So you've been on a blood glucose roller coaster. So if you changed your coffee habit, then this craving would go away in the afternoon. So that might, but that's more of a biochemical approach. Or is the three o'clock craving because you have a meeting, let's say you have a team meeting every day uh, at half past one and you feel like you subordinate in those meetings or you feel like there's one particular colleague who's really critical of you or you perceive that whatever you do with this particular team member, it's just never enough. So in other words, you come out of every meeting with the perception that someone or a number of people are disapproving of you in some way, but that won't be conscious. Mm. And so you eat, you want the sweet food to numb the pain, the emotional pain of that uh, because it's so uncomfortable when we perceive disapproval because it scratches the itch that we won't that we won't survive, um, which gets set up when we're little babies. But we know that as adults that a life with approval in it is lovely, but we don't need the approval of others to literally to, to survive. Whereas when we're babies, someone has to love or and or approve of us enough to give us food and clothing and shelter so we can survive. So, yeah, the emotional exploration would come because you might see, okay, yeah, I have, I've had a meeting and this person said this and I can see it really hurt my feelings and I'm wanting the sugar to deal with that. So does the sugar actually deal with that? No, it doesn't. So let's find another way to deal with my hurt feelings. Mm, it's so fascinating to me that there are so many layers here and to also, again, it, it comes back to that approach of not treating ourselves like it's just kind of a, if we stop doing this, then this is going to 
stop our sugar cravings. There's there's different elements to look at th- and individualized as well, depending on the person, yeah. because everybody is different, like you were saying before. Now, just touching on something that we brought up earlier, which was using body fat as fuel. And, you know, we I, I suppose that if you're thinking about weight loss, you're thinking about, you know, sort of holding on to excess body fat. And is what what's the reason for the for our bodies really resisting using fat as fuel or using fat as an efficient fuel and how can we change this from a physical perspective and address that so to if the body's hanging on to excess body fat it's getting the message to do so mm. so we have to work out which message is it for that person so is it because of cortisol that we talked about earlier? Mm. Is it because of what's certain gut bacteria? So there's really clear research showing that if we have more of a particular type of a certain type of gut bacteria, it will make calories worth more than if we have more of another type of gut bacteria. So we want to look after our gut microbiome. How do we do that? We give the gut microbiome what it needs, which is predominantly whole real food because whole real food doesn't just have nutrients in it, but it has prebiotic substances that actually feeds uh, the the good guys to, to live and survive in there. So our gut microbiome changes relatively quickly when we consistently, not perfectly, when we consistently look after ourselves with predominantly eating whole real food. So it can be a gut bacteria scenario. It can be related to the thyroid. I can't tell you how many people have, they don't have a thyroid disease, but their thyroid isn't working as well as it once did. Mm. So for example, if someone ticks all the boxes of the symptoms of an underactive thyroid, but their blood tests are in the normal range, I want to see those blood tests because they're usually skewed to one end of normal. So TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, is made by the pituitary gland at the base of the brain and it calls out to the thyroid gland to wake up and make its hormones. And quite often when people have blood tests for their thyroid function, that's the only one that's tested. And then, so the normal range, we have to have normal ranges, it'd be chaos without it, but I like to look at bloods and use them as a guide. I'd rather work with the body. Uh, So the normal range in Australian and New Zealand pathology labs for TSH at the moment is about 0.4 to 4. Now, that's a fairly decent normal range. And we, we, someone who has a TSH of 0.4 usually looks and feels completely differently from someone who has a TSH of 4 at the other end of that mm. spectrum. But what we don't do, it's that we're not set up from it in our society to really prevent health, health conditions at the moment, unfortunately. So let's say we're at our most awesome, fantastic level of health when we're 26 years old. We don't go off to the doctor and say, I'm at my best, test all my blood for every single parameter so I know what my ideal is. Mm. We usually are, women will be, or it can be any age, you might start to feel exhausted in your late 30s or the challenges might come through perimenopause. For a lot of women, that's in their 40s or it might be postmenopause or you start to feel lousy and like you're not yourself anymore so that's when you turn up to the doctor going let's do some blood tests so let's say when you were 26 your tsh was one so that's in the normal range and now let's say you're 50 and your tsh is three that's still in the normal range but you're having to make three times the amount you used to make Mm. and then so the tsh is calling out to the thyroid to make its hormones and the There are two main thyroid hormones, T4 and T3. T4 is inactive and doesn't drive metabolic rate, doesn't help regulate temperature. T3 is the active thyroid hormone. Now, the normal range for T4 in down under pathology labs at the moment is between about 10 and 20. So let's say when you were 26, you used to make 15 units of T4 right in the middle of the normal range. And maybe now that you're 50, you make 11 units. So it's right at the bottom of that normal range. But you'll be told that all of that's normal, but that's not normal for you. Yes. And so it's addressing, it's a huge part of what I try to do in all the work that I do these days. And it will be a focus in my upcoming weight loss workshops that I'm running is to help women actually be able to read those blood tests and see if they are skewed to one end of normal. Because to answer your question, if the body's getting the message to store fat, 
the road in is the road out. So mm. we've got to work out what the road in is for an individual and then address that. Because let's say, let's say it's someone's thyroid and I just start focusing on cortisol, they're not going to get the outcome. Yes. You've got to focus on the thing that's gone awry for the person. Mm. And we do that by talking about the symptoms they're displaying, which is what I mean, that the body is forever giving us feedback about our choices. It's trying to let us know what needs tweaking, which is something don't want to listen. <laughs> yes, I like that so much. And just to understand that the body is signaling us, those symptoms are signals to say, okay, we need to look at this and to almost, it's almost doing a review of what is normal for me in this particular situation. And if the outcome is, or the goal is to lose weight, for example, then what what is my body showing me and where do I need to address that to, to essentially achieve the outcome that you, that you want to do? Um, now, we have touched on this already as well, this connection between emotions and eating habits. And I think just generally speaking, if we kind of broaden it out, this broaden out the scope to sort of a more general conversation about emotional eating, people will know what this is because we refer to it a lot. And people I think are aware that they perhaps reach for certain foods when they are feeling a certain emotion, for example. How can we actually dissolve these behaviours if we're actually aware of them? Because sometimes, like we were talking about before, some of them are unconscious and we don't know about them. But a lot of the time, people know why they're doing it and, you know, I'm stressed and so I'm going to reach for this. So how can we, at the base level, begin to dissolve that behaviour, the actual action of reaching for a particular food when we're feeling a certain emotion, when we're aware of it? I would suggest that we're not really aware of it because when we say oh, I reach for that because I'm stressed, mm. that's a blanket statement. What's really behind that? I'm perceiving that someone's disapproving of me yes. is usually what's behind it. So what? then that's why that exercise I mentioned about finding the traits we need other people to see in us, that's why that's so powerful because when we get up in the morning and we think, okay, I'm, let's say weight loss is a focus for someone, and they'll say, I'm going to really look after my food today. And they'll usually do, they'll usually make nutritious choices or they find it easier at breakfast and lunch. Mm. And then it's in the mid-afternoon, evening and after dinner where, the, where things can go awry. One of the biggest reasons for that, when it's not a lack of knowledge, one of the biggest reasons for that is over the day we stack on top of each other all the experiences we have of when others disapprove of us. And you can then pick, and when you perceive that others are disapproving of you, even if it's, even, and it's why I'd say to do that, that exploration of the traits because it's partly how you start to make the unconscious conscious, mm. which is the work of Carl Jung, whose work I absolutely love. And he, I won't quote this accurately probably, but the essence of a quote of his is, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will run your life and you'll call it fate. Yes. And so we, when we say I, I eat like that when I'm, I've had patients who will say, yeah, but I eat like that. I eat in an unresourceful way when I'm stressed and when I'm happy. And it's because the belief that's there that they're not worth taking care of has never, ever been addressed. Yes. And if you can imagine or the one of, part of what I help try to help people get back in touch with is when, if you can imagine a two-year-old little girl Imagine you're standing at your kitchen window and you're looking out into the backyard and there's a two-year-old little girl there. She's wearing a pretty dress and she's just content on her own and she's spinning around going, la, la, la. That little human knows how precious she is and how special she is and how unique she is and yet she also has no awareness of that because she's never not been that at that point. So that sounds like gobbledygook, I know, but bear with me. So... We can only have an experience of something like feeling special when we've had the opposite of that. Otherwise, it just special is just how it is. So when you're two, you know you're unique, you know you're special. And then we, our brain is an extraordinary meaning maker and we start to create meanings about who we must be for the people in our world to behave the way they are. And when they're in an amazing place, we think it's because of us. So if we're in the kitchen and we're, we're four years old and we've just done this fabulous finger painting and we look up in that moment and see our mother 
smiling and laughing and that feels really good to us. And we're, at that age, we're egocent- when we're four, we're egocentric from an emotional maturation perspective. Sadly, some people never change. But anyway, when we're four, we're supposed to be. And But all that means is when you're egocentric, you think that people are the way they are in the world because of you. So when they're happy, you think it's because of you. And if so when you're four, if you notice that mum's happy and smiling after you've done the finger painting, let's say that happens six times, you will probably become an artist. Mm. You start to see where your half your personalities come from. But the same thing happens when the people we, we rely on when we're little kids, the people we rely on to survive, the ones who give us food and clothing and shelter, if they're in a lousy place, we can't see that they are the way they are because of their joy and their pains up until this point in time. We don't understand that there's raised voices in the kitchen, a bit of yelling going on because our father was just made redundant and he doesn't know how on earth he's going to pay for our education. All we know is that feels concerning, uncertain, might be frightening. In other words, there's a lack of homeostasis in our body and we will do anything, our body on a cellular level right up to a macro level, will do anything to get back to homeostasis, which is another word for balance. And so when we're four and we can hear the raised voices in the kitchen, we are we don't have the ability at this point emotionally because we're egocentric to see that they're behaving like the way that they are because of how they are we think it's because of us and so in that moment when we're very young some a belief in our own deficiency gets created mm. and we don't sit there when we're four going oh I'll pick this belief because it'll be really fantastically dysfunctional by the time I'm 48 that'll be excellent mm. <laughs> <laughs> We just absorb the belief to try to make sense of how the chaos or the calm when we're growing up and those beliefs then run our life until we dig them dig them out. Like the lady, I, the example I mm. gave you, dad loved my brothers enough to keep them. He didn't love me enough to keep me. Yeah, she That was truth to her. That was not a belief. There was no flexibility in that. Yes. So it's finding, it's finding the where we perceive the disapproval of others, the stories we make up. Yes. And it's finding them and it's breathtaking to witness people do it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like because we hit that so early that actually that's this, it really is the solution for everything, everything and any kind of symptom or problem or, you know, sort of block that you might be having with your weight loss journey comes back to really just asking yourself those questions around where is it that I have perceived somebody else outside of me in a certain way and how am I, do I perceive myself to be not living up to what I think they think I should be? I know it's getting super, super deep, but, I, but I'm with you. I'm with you on it. And I think that's why your work is so incredible because you are able to combine all these different levels of exploration with the people that you work with. So I'm, I'm so, I, I find it so fascinating. I think it's, it's so incredible to explore when you, um, are able to do that that work for yourself. Um, so one of the things that I speak to all my guests about is rejection and failure because it's something that we all experience. And I'm so curious to to know what has been your biggest rejection or failure, and what have you learned from it? <laughs> I'm not going to be a fun person to do this with because I don't see things like that. <laughs> for me, it's all just feedback. Mm. And so when I remember failing an exam, so I remember getting 48% in an exam and that is officially failing, less than 50% is failing and you can't go on and do the next subject until you get your grades higher. And I remember that experience and then remember thinking, I actually feel like this is trying to steer me in a different direction because I was enrolled in a different university course at the time when that happened And it was what made me actually sit there and go, this is so annoying to learn. Like I love studying and I love learning, but this particular subject is really painful Mm. as in I'm not inspired by it. And it was very much a have to rather than I get to do this. And it was actually that experience that made me go, what do I love learning about? And that my answer to that was nutrition and human health and human behavior. So, So I don't see things like that, whether it's with a relationship ending, 
48% in an exam. It's all just feedback because I believe I don't just pay lip service to this. I live it, that it's all for us. Life happens for us, not to us. And when we can see see that, it's like these things are on the way, not in the way. Mm. So I'm not a really fun person to ask about failure and rejection because my my brain pathways aren't sort of set up to, I, I know those, I, I get that those things are a thing, but I don't frame them that way. Yes. As uh, bad things. Mm. Yeah. No, I feel like most most of my guests feel exactly the same in that, whatever thing that comes to mind is always something that has happened to steer them in a new direction and for the better. And it's course, it's always course, course correction. I course correction. Yes, yeah. yes, which I love. I love that. So my final question for you is if you had an overarching life philosophy or mantra that you try to live your life by, what would that be? Let yourself have what you already have because I think we spend so much of our time in pursuit of things and wanting to improve things, whether that's for ourselves or others or both, when when you talk to people who are dying and you ask them what they're going to miss the most in the world, they tell you the most ordinary things and they'll tell you that they're going to miss their partner's face or the feeling of their dog's fur under their fingertips or the night sky, and we have all of that right now. So I every day remind myself to let myself have what I already have I think that's what joy is all about and I think joy gives us an irreplaceable depth of energy and the appreciation that you then have when you see the light change in the sky or you go outside at night and the sky is full of stars or clouds or whatever it is or you see a baby wallaby or whatever it is <laughs> it's let, it's letting yourself have those experiences that light your heart up and I feel that it's a privilege that's a big part of the privilege of being human is having those experiences through our senses and yeah I so it's let myself have what I already have yes I like that so much it's almost giving yourself permission to accept what is already there and and almost links into gratitude really about what we currently already have in our lives I really, really like that. Well, thank you so much for this amazing chat. It's been so wonderful. I feel like we dug in really deep there to get into some <laughs> really amazing things, which is which is so amazing because I do I, I agree with you. I think I mean that's the the basis of everything. If if you can really hone in on those beliefs and and understand that perception shift, I, you can just make incredible changes with everything in your life, really. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Just before we finish, can I jump in there and just, I don't, you know, if someone's sitting there listening and they have a problem with their thyroid, for example, I don't want people to go away thinking, oh, I've got to find the beliefs. That can be very helpful. But we, when I, when we, when I talked earlier about how we start at the base, so you start with addressing the physical. So is there a nutrient deficiency? The, the thyroid, for example, needs iodine, selenium, zinc, and iron. It might not be a belief. It could be a nutritional deficiency. Or the thyroid is also suppressed by an excessive amount of estrogen. So is it more biochemical? So we can address that. Or is it emotional? So it's, I don't want people to go away thinking, oh, I've got to do this, you know, full-on work and find the beliefs, even though that's really helpful. Yes. There are there are times when a pure nutritional change will give you the, the outcome you're seeking. There are times when a biochemical change will give you what the outcomes that you're seeking. But sometimes it is emotional. Yes. And sometimes it's all three. <laughs> sometimes it's all three. And that's the thing is, is with your work, you're able to address all those different areas of the emotional, the nutritional and the biochemical and discerning the difference between what needs to be addressed. I think I think on the outset, the physical and nutritional seems to be the, the immediate go-to anyway. People are looking for that response. But then going into the emotional is is as well very useful because it's not something that we can see. But I am I so appreciate everything that you're doing and, and all your work. And I think it's it is really incredible. You've got such a unique approach to this kind of work and and it's really incredible to be able to sit down and chat with you. Now where can people find you and all your amazing work and also your upcoming weight loss workshop, which is coming up as well? Where can we go to get all of that good stuff? Oh, thanks, Rach. Yeah, so my website is drlibby.com, so D-R-L-I-B-B-Y.com. Uh, you can read all about my uh, books are on there, my online courses. So, yeah, I have 
I created a nine-week online course for women and uh, I want to take that further. So that's why I've done these weight loss workshops. So it's a series of uh, nine workshops where I'll do some education and then you also ask me live questions over nine weeks uh, and you also get access to the nine-week online course for women. So that's a big focus on weight loss that comes up starting on August the 1st. Uh, I've got a Rushing Woman Syndrome course. Rushing Woman Syndrome was a book I wrote uh, as well. There's an online course for that. I have a detox course, uh, but it's all at drlibby.com. Yes, it's all amazing. There's so many different, array of different courses and books and so many resources there that you can find on Dr. Libby's website, also on Instagram at Dr. Libby. We'll pop all the links up in the show notes and also the link to the weight loss workshop as well that's coming up. But thank you guys so much for listening. Tell us what you learnt from this episode by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you screenshot this episode and tag us and share it to your socials. Thank you again so much, Dr. Libby, for chatting with me. And thank you guys again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Rach Active Podcast.